The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. Good morning. Um, For those of you who don't know, uh, my name is Tobias. I'm one of the associate pastors here at Christ the King. And um, Penny is away this Lord's Day. Uh, It's a privilege for me to get to open up God's Word for us this morning and continue our study in 1 John. We'll be in 1 John chapter 4. Um, Last week, you may remember, uh, we looked at the first six verses in chapter 4. And um, in that section, we heard John say to his readers, say to you and me, Test every spirit to see whether it is from God. And that phrase, from God, it might seem inconsequential. But it's interesting, you know, he uses that phrase, from God, eight times in this epistle. And six of those times are in these six verses. He's interested in getting his readers and getting you and me to discern whether someone is from God and what their teaching is from God. And why, why did he do that? Well, because uh, at that time there were certain people that were claiming to have fellowship with God, to know God, to abide in God, to be in the light as God is in the light, and yet... They were hating their brothers, he tells us in 1 John chapter 2. And they were saying that they weren't sinful. He says that in the first chapter. And in last week's passage, he tells us that these same people were denying that Jesus had come in the flesh. And John had strong words for these people. He called them liars. He called them children of the devil. He called them false prophets and deceivers. And in last week's passage, he concluded that these people were not led by the Spirit of God. Rather, they were led by the Spirit of Antichrist. They were not from God. Instead, they were from the world. And so these six verses that we heard last week, they provide us with a sort of litmus test for determining who and what is from the Lord. And as I considered that passage in light of this week's passage, there were two things that struck me. And one of them was the pastoral heart of John that came out in that passage. You see, in that passage, he calls them little children. He calls them beloved. And then right in the middle of that passage, in verse 4, he says this. He says, you are from God. In the midst of a passage where they are to be discerning the spirits and determining whether one is from God, he says, you are from God. And he says, you have overcome them. Why? He says, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. It's a striking statement in the midst of calling for discernment to give them that assurance. 
And then there was another thing that struck me as I was thinking about this passage. In verse 6, he ends by saying this. Um, He says, those who know God, those who are from God, what do they do? They listen to us. And he's talking about himself, and he's talking about the other uh, eyewitness testimony, uh, uh, testifiers to, the, to um, uh, Jesus' incarnate ministry. And in doing that, he's primed his readers, he's primed you and me to listen to the rest of his message, hasn't he? If we are from God, we will listen to what John has to say. And so what does John have to say as he continues in this letter? We ought to listen to it. And so I want you to um, look at verse 7. And we're going to read verse 7 all the way through verse 21. And let's remember this is God's holy word. His inspired, his infallible, his inerrant word. So let's give careful attention to it. He says this, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world." There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious and mighty God, uh, we humble ourselves before you. As we read this word uh, that testifies to your love for sinners, it's overwhelming to us. It's overwhelming that you would love us. Oh, Father, we uh, ask that you will open our eyes and our ears to the truth of this message. Help us to see afresh your love for us as sinners. 
And Father, we ask, Lord, that you will uh, cause your word, this passage, to go deep within us, to penetrate us. And in doing so, we ask, Lord, by your spirit that you will change us by it and cause us to walk in your ways. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So, having read that passage, if I asked you to close your eyes and just say the first word that comes to mind, um, I wonder what you would say. I wonder if it wouldn't be love. You see, John has been uh, oftentimes called the, the writer of love. He uses the word and its cognates 46 times just in this letter, and 27 of those times come in just these 15 verses. So just like the Apostle Paul has his kind of love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13, this could be said to be John's love passage. So what does John have to say to us about love in this passage? What does he want us to hear? Well, in verse 7, he begins by giving us an exhortation. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And I have to say, when I, when I read that, I can't help but think about a song. And I imagine you're, uh, there are more, it's, it's, I'm not the only one that's thinking about this song. In 1980, I was six years old, and my parents brought me and my brother this vinyl record with this, I think it was a blue songbook cartoon on the front of it, and it was Salty the Singing Songbook. You know what I'm talking about? Yes. Okay. Uh, all right. You know who didn't know who I, what I was talking about? Penny. Uh, I, I don't think Salty the Singing Songbook made much of a splash in Canada. Anyway... There was this song, and it was based on this passage, this verse. Beloved, let us love one another. You know how it's going. You're going to clap in a second. My brother and I wore that record out. But the, the Apostle John, he gives us this exhortation. Beloved, let us love one another. Why does he do that? He repeats this command Twice in this passage, in verse 11 and later on, essentially in verse 21. This command to love one another, it essentially frames the passage that we're looking at this morning. Why does he give us this passage? Why is our duty to love one another? And why does it follow immediately on a passage where the Apostle John is telling us to test the spirits to determine who and what is from God? Well, I want you to notice that little phrase again. You see, in verse 7, John says, love is from God. There's that phrase again that he used six times in the preceding six verses. And remember that in the middle of those six verses, he paused and he said, you are from God. What's he doing here? Well, he's leading his readers and he's leading you and me to connect the dots. He's leading us to recognize that if we say that we are from God, if we've been born of God, if we know God, 
then we ought to act like God. We ought to resemble God. And we ought to resemble Him in His love. Because love is from God. In other words, he's saying that there ought to be familial resemblance. Just think of, think of that mom or dad or uh, distant aunt or uncle. You look at their photo and you see yourself in that photo. I had one, my Uncle Tommy. Uh, you could put his, his uh, photograph from the Navy when he was 18 years old right up against my senior picture and you would think, my word, he's a doppelganger from another generation. There was familial resemblance there. And John's calling us to recognize that. But notice he doesn't simply say that love is from God. He says something more striking in verse 8. He says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. He is love. He's the essence of love. Love is so central to who God is John's saying that failure to grasp and emulate him in his love reveals that we don't know or love him. The writer Constantine Campbell puts it this way. He says, the absence of love reveals a lack of knowledge of God. If God is love, and if that love is known, then his love will flow through the life of the believer. To know God is to know love. And to know love is to show love. Without showing love, there is no knowing love. And there is no knowing God. And yet, this raises some questions for us, I think. If knowing God as love is central to knowing Him, loving Him and being able to emulate Him in His love, then we need to know something about what love is. What does it look like? What's its nature? And how is it best demonstrated? Well, our culture has a lot of answers for us, I think. Our culture speaks about love quite often. And a lot of times the message that we get from those around us is that love is essentially a feeling. It's dependent upon our emotions. Uh, when we're truly loving, we're following our heart. The Beatles famously wrote a song and they said, all you need is love. This became the theme of the summer of love. George Harrison, one of the Beatles, when he was asked to reflect on that sentiment, do you still believe in that sentiment, all you need is love? He said, yes, I do. He said, you see, love is simply complete knowledge. If we just had complete knowledge, then all the world's troubles would dissolve. Perhaps one of the most ridiculous answers about what, God, what love is comes from a film from the 1970s, Love Story. Some of you may know where I'm going with this. Uh, this, this movie starred Ali McGraw, Ryan O'Neill. Keep Ryan O'Neill's uh, name in mind. I'm going to return to that. Uh, but a couple of times in that movie, you hear this refrain. You hear them say, love means never having to say you're sorry. <laughs> I, I hear snickers. Love means never having to say you're sorry. 
But in one of the great Hollywood cinematic parodies of all time, this line was lampooned in one of my favorite movies, also starring Ryan O'Neill, What's Up Doc? You may know this movie. This movie starts, and Ryan O'Neill looks at her and he says, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard. <laughs> it's a beautiful line. Hollywood got it right there. But in reality, all of the answers that we've run through, they're all absurd. Love is not dependent on our, fle our fleeting emotions and feelings. Love is not defined by complete understanding. Friends, that's a fool's errand. We'll never love. And love is not demonstrated by the absence of a need to apologize. Notice what John says in verses 9 and 10. He says this, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Friends, we ought to sit with this for a moment. These are radical statements about the nature and demonstration of love. After all, how do we demonstrate love? And maybe even more importantly, to whom? Are we apt to demonstrate love? Consider the practice of writing love letters. This may be a consideration that is in the long distant past for you. What did you do in those letters? You looked at the things that you found lovely in the one you loved. You extolled those virtues. You talked about their kindness, their generosity, so on and so forth. To do this cost you very little. It cost you pen and paper, a little time and a little thought. And now consider what we just read in verses 9 and 10. It's striking when you think about the dissimilarity, isn't it? You see, God did not write us some effervescent love letter. He sent us his son. He wasn't attracted by yours and my virtues. He didn't extol those as if we had any to extol. He saw us in our ugliness and in our shame. And he moved toward us nevertheless. And you know, he wasn't content to let us simply be who we are, to be our true selves, regardless of the fact that our true selves lead us to distorted affections. No, God acted in love to change us. And you know, he didn't do something relatively easy or painless. His love was costly. He saw that we're dead. And he sent his son to give us life. He saw that we're sinners. And he sent his son as an atonement for our sins. Friends, this is radical love. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Romans 5.8. He said, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, do you believe this? 
Do you see the radical portrait that is painted for us about what true love actually is? And in seeing it, do you grasp the measure of God's love for you? That he wasn't repulsed by your ugliness, your hatred, your sin. But instead, he sought a relationship with you. And he did so at great cost. It cost him his son. One commentator put it this way. In his love, God sought us. He caught us. He bought us. And he brought us into his kingdom and into his family. You see, as love, God initiated a relationship with us, not while we were his friends and lovely, but his enemies. And it cost him greatly. Friends, this is the measure of God's love for you. And do you believe it? And you know, if you do believe this, John's also asking another question. Do you recognize that God is calling you as those who claim to know him and to love him. Those who claim to be from him. To love others as he has loved you. He's calling you as his children to move towards those you find unlovely. To forgive those you have been wronged by. To, to give yourself sacrificially to others. He's calling you to do this because this is what he did for you. And that's how true love, that's how his love is demonstrated. You know, earlier in 1 John 3, 16, he said this, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the, brother, for the brothers. We've already heard this, but in this passage punctuated with instances of love after love, John is bringing the full force of his rhetorical skill to bear. He's getting us to connect the dots. He wants us to see that any claim to know and to love God must first be rooted in an understanding of his love for us. And it must be lived out in our relationships. And this is so important to John that he repeats it in verse 11 and again in verse 21. And you know, when I hear John's message about loving one another, I'm reminded of another, of the beautiful words of another famous John, the poet John Donne, when he says this, Wilt thou love God as he thee? Then digest, my soul, this wholesome meditation. The Son of glory came down, and was slain, us, whom he had made and Satan stolen to unbind. Twas much that man was made like God before, but that God should be made like man much more. Friends, that is the measure of God's love for you. Well, as we turn our attention to verses 12 through 21, the second part of this passage, there are just a couple of things that I want us to consider. I want us to consider in relationship to this call to love, these two other ideas, abiding in God and the perfection of God's love in our love for one another. Notice in verse 12 what he says. He says, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So what does John mean by that 
when he says, if we love one another, God abides in us. What's he getting at there? Well, I think it would be a mistake, first of all, for us to think that our love for one another is what grounds the abiding. Our love for one another is not the ground of our abiding or God's abiding in us. After all, he goes on to say immediately in verse 13, he says, by this we know that we abide in him. Did you catch that? By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. He says something similarly in chapter 3, verse 24. He says, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. You see, our abiding in God and his abiding in us is fundamentally rooted in God's initiative to make us his own, to adopt us into his family. You remember earlier in the passage last week, he calls his readers and he calls you and me children. And he says to us, little children, you are from God and have overcome the world, overcome them. And then he says... For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Friends, he's talking about the gift of God's indwelling spirit. God's abiding in us. Paul puts it this way in Romans 8, 16. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And he says again in Galatians 4, 16. And because you are sons... God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And so, friends, our love for one another, this is not the grounds of God's abiding. It's the expression of our mutual abiding, we in God and he in us. It expresses that we have come to know the love God has for us in the person of Jesus Christ as a father for his children. And it expresses that we are being transformed by that love more and more into the likeness of his son. This is why John puts it this way in verse 16. He says, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Well, secondly, I want us to just consider uh, the idea that John reintroduces in this passage the perfection of God's love uh, through our obedience. I say reintroduces. He's already mentioned this uh, in uh, chapter 2, verse 5. But notice what he says again in verse 12. He says, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So what does he mean by this? How is God's love perfected in us as we love one another? Well, to start, I think we need to keep in mind what John's not saying. He is not saying by perfected that we somehow perfectly demonstrate the love of God. Instead, he's saying that, God, that the love God has for us, which is found and centered in the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ, it reaches its goal, its intended goal. It's brought to maturity as we love one another. But why is this? Well, we need to remember that God is spirit. 
And so he's invisible. John seems to be reminding of this, uh, us of this fact when he says in verse 12, he says, no one has ever seen God. And he says something similar in verse 20. And so on a practical level, since God is spirit, although he has revealed himself perfectly in the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ, his presence and his love are lived out physically and tangibly in our relationship with one another. And so in that sense, our love for one another becomes revelatory of God and his love for us. And in that way, God's love for sinners is perfected in our godly sacrificial fellowship. John, John Stott puts it this way. He says, the unseen God who once revealed himself in his son now reveals himself in his people if and when they love one another. God's love is seen in their love because their love is his love imparted to them by his spirit. Our love for one another is evidence of God's indwelling presence. Reciprocal Christian love means not only that God lives in us, but also that his love is made complete in us. It would be hard to exaggerate the greatness of this conception. God's love, which originates in himself, verses 7 and 8, and was manifested in his son, verses 9 and 10, is made complete in his people, verses 12. Verse 12. Friends, this is a profound truth. You know, we're thinking, uh, we're planning to um, have uh, Christianity explore discussions in the fall. And this is a great outreach ministry. And I'm excited about it. And there are other ministries uh, like this uh, that we could get excited about. But we dare not lose sight of the fact that our love for one another has incredible power. It has revelatory power. It gives tangible expression of our trust in the Lord's love for us. And it manifests the truth, presence, and the love of God before a watching world. And you know, there's a wonderful corollary to the love of God perfected in us that God intends to bring us great comfort. All fear is removed. Look at what he says in verses 16 through 19. He says this, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Brothers and sisters, did you hear that? He says that the result of God's love perfected in us is that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. We may have confidence right now, even in the midst of our sin, even as we continue to wage war against sin. We have nothing to fear if we abide in the love of God. This is an astonishing statement. 
After all, it's so easy for us to put ourselves up on a divine performance treadmill time and time again, isn't it? We jump on, we're eager to run, we set our sights on the prize, that of winning our Father's approval, and we concentrate. And we say, I'll do better this time, Lord. I'll never do that again, Lord. And when we inevitably stumble and flop off the ramp of the, of the treadmill, we cower in fear at the thought of the Lord's displeasure and judgment. And you know, the crazy thing is, is that we jump right back up and we get on the treadmill again and we try again. And friends, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. It is good. It is right for us to desire to please our Heavenly Father, to obey His commands, and to love others as He has loved us. But the prize we're focused on is not winning our Heavenly Father's approval. When we think this way and jump back on the treadmill like that, we miss the heart of what John's saying in this passage about the love of God. Yes, the love of God is perfected in us as we obediently love one another. But friends, such obedient love is possible only when we have come first to know the love he has for us as sinners in the loving gift he has given us in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, John wants us to grasp that God's perfected love in us which dispels all fear and gives confidence. This is fundamentally a result of the Lord's initiative and work in our lives, opening our eyes to the truth of his gospel, imparting his spirit to us, and causing us to walk in his ways as his beloved children. The Apostle Paul understood this. He said in Romans 8, 14 and 15, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And you know, this is why we hear John say in verse 19, we love because he first loved us. I like the way John Stott captures John's point. He says this, our great characteristic is not that we fear, but that we love. And the reason is that he first loved us. God's love was primary. All true love is a response to his initiative. Brothers and sisters, have you captured, have you grasped the depth of God's love for you? Love so selfless that he gave his son for you. Love so generous that he gave his spirit to you. And love so secure that you have nothing to fear as you rest in it. I'd like to close with uh, the words of perhaps an unfamiliar hymn. I sought the Lord and afterward I knew. And it goes like this. I find, I walk, I love. But oh, the whole of love is but my answer, Lord thee for thou wert long before with my soul always thou lovest me
Oh, Father, we uh, stand in awe of your love, your selfless love. We look upon our own lives, the frailty of our commitments, the blackness of our hearts. We see the ugliness in our souls. And we ask ourselves, how, how could you love us? And yet, Lord, you say you did, and you demonstrated it. You sent your Son that we might have life. You sent your Son that we might be forgiven. Oh, Father, we ask, Lord, that that the beauty of this picture of love will uh, penetrate deep. Help us to see how deep your love is for us. And as we do so, Lord, we ask that you will, by the power of your Spirit, cause us to walk in your ways and to emulate our Savior in loving one another selflessly. Father, thank you for this word. And we ask that you will continue to use it in our lives to change us and make us more and more into the pattern of your Son. We pray, pray this in the mighty name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.